Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. Rabbi Yehoshua Fass, co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, joined us for the pre-Parsha Shlach in the Diaspora discussion. Uh, very interesting conversation. Latest about Nefesh Benefesh, Rabbi Yehoshua Fass, our guest on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Speaking of home, we're going to be speaking with someone in a moment who is home. And just based on the advanced notice that people have been getting, a lot of folks are tuning in just to hear him. Just to hear him connect us to the Holy Land. Here at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app from Martinex Studios on this Thursday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. Uh, Rabbi Fass has uh, agreed to uh, forego his usual theme song uh, so that we can get directly into our conversation. After all, in the, in the diaspora, we read Parsha Shlach this week, and the annual tradition is that Rabbi Fass, who's with us on a regular basis, thank God, but he always clears his schedule and makes time for us uh, when it's the week of Parsha Shlach, even if that's exclusive to the diaspora as opposed to uh, what they'll be reading in Israel this coming Shabbat. Rabbi Rabbi Yoshua Josh Fass is co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. He leads an organization that has been instrumental, not even not even a, a good enough word, frankly, but we'll say instrumental in bringing uh, tens of thousands of Olim, uh, people from North America who want to live in the Holy Land, uh, to Israel over the last quarter of a century. Rabbi Yoshua Fass, an honor to welcome you back to JM in the AM. It's great to be on. How you doing? Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Things are uh, things are uh, are moving forward. Baruch Hashem. Things are uh, are wonderful. And uh, you know, I got I got I, I said yesterday as I was as I was talking on the air, uh, doing a little monologue about um, uh, how far back we go and some of the things we're proud of uh, having accomplished together, and how you've been there for me, even the most even during the most difficult times, including over the last few months, and I did mention including just a day or two after the fire of March 27th as well, so I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, as I'm doing all this, I, I said I am going to drift at some point into my tirade, or maybe I should say rant. Tirade sounds a bit too strong, but my rant about the current condition that for 14 consecutive weeks we have a discrepancy in what's being read in the Torah in Israel and what's being read in the Torah in the diaspora. And Rabbi Fass, I, I think we have the same conversation every single year. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so funny because yesterday I said to myself, I actually said to the listeners yesterday, I would assume I had the same tirade and the same observations in past years, but I don't know. It seems so fresh to me. It seems like it seems like I just discovered it and discovered some of the reasons why it might be. So so give me a minute just to express what I'm feeling. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Rant. <laughs> give me a minute to express I'm, what I'm, I'm I'm here for you. I'm here for you, my friend. <laughs> to express what I'm feeling. And then you'll tell me, and you don't have to tell me if it's new information or not. You'll just tell me if, in fact, I'm, uh, you know, I'm on to something or not. I, I have a feeling just like, and I said this at the Young Israel Forest Hills, Rabbi Schreier gave me an opportunity to speak over Shvuas. And uh, I think the crowd, you know, s sort of agreed with it. Uh, just like in Jewish history, uh, one has to admit that uh, that the Jewish tradition has been Western Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere. 
hemisphere centric. And what I mean by that is, you know, we talk about going out to the sukkah and we're showing our commitment to God because the weather is getting worse and we're building the sukkah that time of year. Well, in Australia, it's spring and they, and they, and they likely, you know, are not looking at, at it from that perspective. But of course, it's always based on this area of the world from Israel and West uh, that all of, and on the Northern hemisphere that all of this has been created. And of course, when, uh, when, to- when we talk about Chag Ha'aviv, right, we talk about Pesach and the, uh, and that we want that to be in the springtime, obviously in other parts of the world, it may not be necessarily so. So I think that this whole thing with the Parshiot, where there are certain guidelines, I don't want to say rules, but I'll say guidelines about what Parsha should be read when, Devarim before Tishabav, Bamidbar before Shavuos, and we follow all of that, right? And that's why we have this discrepancy. Uh, it is amazing that that is all diaspora-based. That is all from an era, or from many eras in Jewish history, where diaspora was the center of Judaism. And now, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was almost irrelevant that in Israel they weren't following those rules because there are times when those two rules that I just mentioned and others that have to do with the parishes are not followed in Israel because of the calendar makeup. That's just the reality. And with that in mind, and with the fact that now, now the Jewish world is Israel-centric, now the true capital of the Jewish world is Israel and Jerusalem. One cannot deny that. And the majority of Jews are living in Israel. And, and this entire shift has taken place, I would say, over the last 15 years to really be solidified in the way that people think of Israel as the center of the Jewish world. With all that in mind, Rabbi Fass, I just think that at this point, when Pesach ends, we have to make a commitment to read two parshios in the diaspora and simply catch up immediately because the center of the Jewish world and the future of the Jewish people is in Israel. And I think that this discrepancy holds us back from realizing that. Uh, now that I've read... I, I, w- I, I would argue the opposite. I would argue the opposite. Ever watch a movie where the volume was a little bit off, like a millisecond yeah. from the visual, mm-hmm. or when it's dubbed really badly? Mm-hmm. There is a lank, lack of synchronicity, right. or there is a lack of an alignment. And I think in a world that things are easy and things feel right wherever you are, I think it's good to have sometimes reminders that you're not aligned and that it is a bit off. It, uh, it it pulls us in a direction of wanting to calibrate our compass, wanting to calibrate our lives. I think it's good to be not aligned for a, for for a bit. That's my two cents. But this non and, and even by, though you're even though it's going to push you to rant even more, right. but that, that, <laughs> and, those are my two cents. And by the way, just like I've said this in the past, I think you've said that in the past, frankly. But anyway, yeah. I but but the what but the sadness is that if we go with your theory that this is actually you know a good thing that you know it's not like we're off and 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 bending the rules toward Israel we're off and bending the, and bending the rules toward Correct. the diaspora that's what's so sad about it so if it was like a positive i think i, I, think, I think unfortunately it reflects <laughs> the truth of where we default right. in our, in the diaspora experience but right. that's for a whole other conversation <laughs> and a whole other tirade <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I agree with you. We'll do that maybe during our Jewish calendaric trivia segment. Uh, mm. So uh, we'll get to Parsha Shlach in a moment, but I would be remiss if yeah. I didn't uh, make two observations. Uh, the first being that, I mean, you're in the brand new center. I was, In fact, that was the last time I was in Israel was the day I spent, yes. I spent with you at the big celebration in November. And yeah. it just seems yeah. from the information we're getting and the people we're speaking to, it just seems you're able to do so much more. You were doing so much in your old location, but it seems like you're able to do so much more, not just hosting events for, for, for outsiders and, and for yourselves. I'm talking about practical courses and meetings and bringing in uh, people from around the world who are now. It has been, it has been transformative. We are not just servicing Olim, we're educating about Aliyah and on Zionism and on Israel. We're celebrating Zionism and Aliyah. We're advocating, and it's just been remarkable. We have high school students in GAP programs and seminaries. We've had soldiers. We've had programs. We've had working with municipalities. We've had 2,000 Ukrainian refugees being processed for Aliyah here. It's just every day we have hundreds of people who are in our center. Um, I don't know who anyone is, but it, it's been it's been remarkable. I didn't expect it to have this traction so soon after we opened the doors, but it's just been incredible to see. And incredible to see that it's working at full capacity around the clock, literally. And for those and, who are have uh, not taking impact for those who have not the opportunity to be there, um, but are familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, it's right next to Cinema City and. The location's amazing. And by the way, uh, you talk about education and all the different conferences and the uh, and the gatherings. It, it seems also you're able to put together courses and and uh, and meetings that lead to more employment. One of the things you've always been uh, paying attention to since uh, Nefesh Benefesh started was making sure that Olim uh, have uh, opportunities, have employment opportunities in Israel. And it just seems that you're able to that people are able to network better, and you're able to provide more information regarding different courses and advancement in employment because absolutely of where you are so but which absolutely is, what's more important than that i mean that's such a key to families uh, moving to israel and, and and thriving in israel what's more important than uh, employment and education the second thing of course i'll say and this uh, I, I think is again obvious to those who've been following what's happening during the pandemic and now what i'll hopefully call post-pandemic and that is that people are still moving to israel every single time you and i have spoken over the last, last quarter of a century i have tossed out theories of why uh, a specific period of time would lead to a lull in aliyah and of course you've argued the opposite and you've always been right and and during this pandemic and now post-pandemic and now with the reinstitution of a big charter flight and the ability to celebrate together and, and that literally means together because as you know not just my list Listeners, but as you know, people are watching from around the world when charter flights land in Israel. Uh, it's just an, uh, amazing that all of this momentum has been able to continue. And uh, it m must be for you, as I said yesterday on the air, must be for you an amazing feeling that you're starting off such an incredible summer. It's invigorating. It's great to have the personal connection with Olim again and to be there right now. A group flight just landed wow. and it's the first time in forever that our staff is there welcoming a group flight and I'm getting videos from on the plane as we speak right now Woo! and messages and pictures. It's amazing of just our staff on the plane with a group of Olim and, and it's just starting and it's great to almost pick up where we left, even though during this time we've had the most, the largest number of Olim make Aliyah in, in, Israel's history in 50 years. Wow. We had around 4,600 Olim make Aliyah last year, and the momentum is continuing. So it's uh, it's really it's it's fantastic 
to feel that energy, to be able to connect to person, person to person, and to be able to celebrate this momentous move. Yeah, well, so it's great. We're very excited about this summer. The mega event has been virtual, but we will not allow, the Jewish people will not allow for these flights and uh, participation in the flights to be virtual. We need people at the airport with the big celebration and greeting those who are coming in with their families and making Aliyah. And thank God, by the way, and, and I'm sure this is, this is not lost on you, thank God, I assume the airport authorities thought long and hard about how to do this and how to get people in in order to you know to do these celebrations and for your staff to be there, etc. So I know you must have. That is a phenomenal supposition. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine you needed a lot of cooperation from a lot of people, or you had to overcome a lot of non-cooperation from a lot of people in order to make this happen. The jury's still out. The jury's still out, my dear friend. (laughs) Uh, Maybe one day we'll have a conclusion. And by the way, just one last point, because you alluded to it. One last point on the brand new Nefesh Benefesh Center. What do we call it, by the way? Headquarters, center, what are we calling it? We're calling it a campus. Campus. Because that's what... So one of the once th- you have like a once yeah. you have two buildings, I think you're able to call it a campus. Right, and now I don't and, know the rules of, of yes. how to define a campus, but well, we're going to be that bold. Well, you and I have just established the rules, and now I will refer to it as the campus for now on. Uh, but <laughs> but it it must be uh, it must be nostalgic for you when you think back to the days when you actually did know the name of everybody in your building, because now you are being uh, uh, you're 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 walking around that building and seeing hundreds, if not thousands, on a weekly basis who are enjoying the campus. Yeah. So you may not have the intimacy of yesteryear, but you have uh, the amazing uh, satisfaction the of, of, of yeah. growth and accomplishment, Absolutely. which is just amazing. Absolutely. All right. Uh, by the way, how was Parsha Schlach? It's re- reminiscent of the time when I used to pe- ask people in Australia if the Yankees won that night since they're a day ahead. Uh, how, how, how was Parsha Schlach uh, last week in it Israel? It was fantastic. Was it great? <laughs> you know, it was great. You know that the majority of the people who are featured in Parsha Schlach were not exactly in tune with the future of the Jewish people being in the land of Israel. You realize that, Rabbi Fess. Truth. Yeah, it's, truth is right. Sometimes we have to remember that, by the way. Uh, I'm not going to call out anybody on this uh, conversation, but sometimes we have to remember that. that in, but it, I might. That, it, <laughs> that even in the key generation, the key generation in the history of the Jewish people, the generation that's known as the generation, talk about the greatest generation in our history, I think they're known as the greatest generation. And the majority of the leaders at that time uh, did not have the affinity toward the land that Caleb and Joshua did. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's just my own little uh, Dvar Torah this morning. Rabbi Fast, we always turn to you. Give us a thought. Give us a thought for Shlach 5782 as we get set to read it in the diaspora this Shabbat. I'm going to try not to have a tirade. I'm not going to follow your lead, but uh, I'll share a thought. I'll share a thought that I had last Shabbat that I would like to try to convey to, to you and to, to the listeners. The, the Kutzka Rebbe on Parsha Shlach, uh, specifically regarding the sin of the spies, relays a very important lesson, an important axiom, that everything that is not a lie is not necessarily the truth. That not saying sheker, not lying, does not automatically mean that one is being truthful. And he explains that the Miraglin, the spy sin, not because they lied, but because they isolated certain truthful facts from the entirety of their experience of their mission. They selected, they carefully chose, they cherry-picked facts and actualities from their experience to paint a very different, biased, slanted, prejudiced narrative. 
Last Shabbat and one of our meals, I, I, I tried an experiment. I, I shared and described the following scenario, a memory. I said, I once had a fast day. I fasted the whole day. And then when it was time to break the fast, I was whisked away and couldn't break my fast for hours later. And to add to that misery, I was wearing a very uncomfortable suit, which was irritating me the whole evening. And I asked the table, I said, how would you describe the day? And unanimously, in unison, they all replied that it must have been a horrible day. I said, in response, in actuality, this was one of the best days of my life because it was my wedding day. Right. So I said, the fast, you know, was a traditional fast of the wedding day. And my tuxedo, which I hated, was very uncomfortable. (laughs) My point was to demonstrate that it is misleading, reckless, and sometimes dangerous to describe and to share isolated moments of an episode. The Radak, or David Kimchi, reaches the same conclusion as the Kutzkerabi, but albeit a few hundred years earlier, through analysis of a certain Pusik in the Parsha. The Pusik reads, They brought forth to Bnei Yisrael a report on the land. And the Radak points out that the verb used is Vayotzi'u, which literally means to extract, to take out, instead of the, wor- of the verb vayaviu, that they brought over the message of their travels to the nation. The sin of the spies is that they extracted, extracted elements, highlights from the greater picture to slant a certain narrative, to create an implied negative description resulting in a very undesirable account. Unfortunately, Nachum, you and I both know this because we talk about this so often that I don't think we've learned the lesson of the sin of the spies, of the Chaytamaraglim. So many individuals, unfortunately, so many communal leaders extract isolated negatives to dissuade, to discourage, to dampen the greatest gift and the greatest miracle of our generation. Sometimes these negatives are, are truthful and unpleasant, and sometimes Rahmana they're unsubstantiated. And instead, they should be communicating the larger picture, the full content, the full embrace of the undeniable fact that our generation has been gifted a miracle. And the indisputable fact that one, as a person, as a people, can only live their lives to the fullest, to the fullest as Jews in our home, as a people in our homeland and a nation in our Tzainu HaKadosha is an extremely, extremely important lesson for us to tell the entire story, to tell the entire narrative. Because if we do, it will inspire thousands and thousands to have that visceral emotional connection, a palpable connection to our homeland. And in this era, when when anybody, anybody has the capability of influencing hundreds and thousands, it's it's incredible uh, with social media how you know somebody can gain a following, and then all of a sudden there's a ripple effect. Uh, you know, it just the, the ball rolls downhill and just keeps gathering moss in terms of followers and in terms of those who take what they say seriously. There's such an opportunity if one is responsible enough, such an opportunity to have the influence that you just described and by the way i want to mention a couple of things the first is i don't know if you would have said this 25 years ago and what i mean by that is not the times have changed 
but when you know in in, in some of what you've dis- some of what you've just said you have discovered again and again and again in your leadership role with Nefesh Benefesh. And if you were not 100% sure about the attitude of certain people, I don't think you would, you would say it and certainly would not say what you said publicly. But after all these experiences and after time and time again, seeing how communal leaders do what you just described, you are comfortable, I'll say in quotation marks, bringing this to the attention of the public, and uh, th- I think that's. I, I don't think I'm comfortable. Right. I think I'm. I'm painfully sharing a reality. Right. But the, you know a what I meant. Reality. You know what I meant. That you're willing. Yes, to I do, know what. Yes. I know. I'm just. Yeah, I know <laughs> that you're willing to do it. <laughs> I know. I know if the transcript of this comes out, you're worried about what people might say. And no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm kidding around. And the other thing is that um, the, the look. <sighs> You visited me at a, I mean, you know, the timing was great, frankly. I, I needed I needed my friend and my friend was there and, and, and you were thankful that God put you in a position where you happened to be in America for a day, which was amazing. And one of the things you said to me that day was you you come back to New York, to New York and it's a different city. You come back to the United States, it's a different country. Uh, you come back here and the appeal, the um, the life that so many of us have, you know, have been trying to cling on to because it's so amazing. This golden of Medina uh, is not the same as it used to be. So now today, as you describe, when people, you know, don't tell the entire narrative and make sure to toss in just how great things are here, I, I think it's important to remind people. You know, you think it's great here, uh, you can't imagine how much greater it is in the Holy Land right now. And I don't think you would have said this as a kid. I don't know if you would have said this five years ago. But today I think you can comfortably say that uh, that life in general for everybody, individuals and families, is much, much better in the state of Israel than likely anywhere else in the world. Truth, but even not, that's where we belong. Yeah, I get it. But sometimes people like myself need to, you know, wake up to reality, and hopefully that reality will force them to get to Israel faster. And then so. this year, when you're joining us on on a charter flight, we'll have Stacy surprise you on the other side, and then we can just finally do your documentation, and we'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is against the off-air Rabbi Fass, who has a different plan oh, for Oh, I me. am so sorry. I'm so sorry. We will edit this. I hope there's like a 15-second well, delay. No, no, this is this is fine. I'm just, I'm just pointing out to the listeners that the Rabbi Fass on the air speaks a little mm. bit differently regarding my future plan than the rabbi fast off the air that's all I'm saying. that is so true so yes, you know yes, but yes. Uh, Absolutely. yeah i love Look, you dearly uh, you you can't imagine i mean uh, I, i'm telling you i this now this is the hard time for me because i can't let go my brother is on the phone i i, I can't i can't just say goodbye and god knows the next time we're going to speak i have to hold on a little longer we're speak in a few days from now <laughs> <laughs> we're probably going to speak tomorrow i would hope i would hope so and if i do make it to israel please god in july because your charter flight please god will be in august if i make it in july i hope to visit the campus and see the incredible i mean remember you know i i was there uh, a couple of times but at the at the very beginning now just just the the vibrancy and the excitement and and the 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 uh the energy that it seems is coming from that campus is is amazing and i can't wait to visit and feel all of that and oh and I, let me remind everybody those who have been inspired by this whether it was your dvartara 
about Parsha Shlach. And by the way, you love the years when you could do this at your Shabbos table and then do this for us a week later. It's so convenient. Oh, it's the dry run. <laughs> I love it. It's so convenient. Um, those of you who have been inspired, it's nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il, or 8664-ALIYAH, 866-4, and then A-L-I-Y-A-H. Let's, uh, let's add to the number of people who have said to me over the years that one of the reasons we're in Israel is because of this program. I cannot be any more enthusiastic about encouraging people to get there. And yeah, we everybody's got their plan, including us. And uh, and I hope that, that everybody plans to, uh, in fact, uh, be in Israel as soon as possible. I used, to, I used to always tell people, you know, plan a trip to Israel every month because then you'll end up going once a year. And, and um, our, our beloved friend, Rabbi, Rabbi Mordechai Grumberg, who lives in Harnof, would always say to me, you always have to have a plan. Just make sure the plan is on the table. If it doesn't work out, you move on to the next plan. But there can't be a time when there is no plan. So, Rabbi Fass, hopefully this will encourage more and more people to actually have a plan. And I take this opportunity to, to encourage you to think of us while you're reading uh, the next Parsha, and we're still on Parsha Shlach in this disconnect that we describe between Israel and the diaspora, and I cannot wait for this 14-week discrepancy to finally be over, frankly, because I think we need to be in sync as opposed to what you described as out of sync earlier. And I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you, my dear friend. Thank you, my dear friend, and all the best. He is the founder, co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, and has facilitated tens of thousands of people to make Aliyah in the last quarter of a century, and that tradition just continues. The numbers are growing. This summer is going to be amazing, and I'm already feeling, I'm already feeling that ground floor energy that I felt years ago when I first met Rabbi Fass. Once we get, once we get back to Israel on a regular basis, and once we get an opportunity to encourage more and more people to hop aboard uh, this incredible Aliyah bandwagon, uh, this is just going to continue to have a massive ripple effect and those numbers are going to get higher and higher and higher speaking of numbers you know the number 8664 aliyah 866 number four and then a-l-i-y-a-h or nbn.org.il nbn.org.il you're listening to a thursday morning parsha schlach edition of jm in the a.m that was my conversation with Rabbi Yehoshua Josh Fass. Next up, Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky called in to discuss the life of the great Cantor Yasla Rosenblatt. Here's that conversation, Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world web, and AlchemSiegel.com, and the AlchemSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. By the way, this upcoming segment is sponsored by our friends at Kedem. Why? Because, well, I mean, Kedem has been one of our main supporters and sponsors for decades, and I can't thank them enough. I don't know if a day goes by where one of their products is not mentioned on our network, and, of course, we do interviews and features and uh, and uh, regular sponsorships of shows, etc., etc. So thank you, thank you to our friends at Royal Wine Kedem and especially the Herzog family. But the reason that they are uh, uh, unofficially or officially sponsoring this next conversation is because there are so many Yesela Rosenblatt fans uh, at the Kedem company, especially our dear friend Yaichi Herzog. 
So uh, we are insisting <laughs> that, they, that they officially be the sponsor of this conversation. Cantor's World presents Remembering the King of Cantors, Yesler Rosenblatt's 89th birthday. Excuse me, Yesler Rosenblatt's 89th yard site. His 89th yard site passed away in 1933. is being commemorated tomorrow night, Thursday, 8 p.m. at Congregation Hassam Sofer, a congregation we know well. On Clinton Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, cantors who will be appearing include cantors Mutti Boyer, Arya Horowitz, uh, Pinya Steinwurzel, uh, A.T. Friedman, Yechezko Brecher, and Nisim Sal. I hope everyone's, everyone's name pronounced correctly. And it's all happening tomorrow night. Cantors World is uh, presenting it. And with us live via telephone is the one and only Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky, who's going to help us not only talk about the event, uh, but uh, talk a little bit about the great Yassela Rosenblatt as well. As I mentioned earlier, if you're a fan of Kiddush Hashem, you've got to be a fan of Cantor Yassela Rosenblatt. Simple as that. The yard site is this Friday, and we were asked to to do something for the yard site this Friday, but because the event is tomorrow night, we figured we'd do it in advance of the event. Hence, Cantor Benny's appearance and during the Arab Shabbos show brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem tomorrow night with Mark Zamek. He certainly is going to include at least one Yasla Rosenblatt piece in commemoration of the art site, as we likely will do on Friday as well. Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky, Cantor at the Parky Synagogue, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. Good morning to you and all the listeners. I can't even imagine how many times you and I have spoken about Yosela Rosenblatt, but it, all of this bears repeating, frankly. He was such a legend and so incredible. Before we talk about the Kiddush Hashem piece and representing the Jewish people well piece, and before we talk about tomorrow night's event, can you can you put into words why he ended up being the Babe Ruth of Cantors? Can you put into words why 89 years after his passing, so many people, Cantors and others, are are longing to hear his selections around the time of his yard site? Wow. That's a, an excellent question. <laughs> I, you know, he had soul. He had soul. And it was all about Neshama. While many other Chazanim had great voices and they could do unbelievable things. And had some Both. soul as well, we should say. And had some and, soul and as well. And had soul. But Yosela was also, he had a voice. But when Yosela started to sing... There was a cry there. In every piece, he was davening to Hashem. And it just left an indelible impression on people. Was he discovered young? Like when he was 20, was he already cantering in places? Absolutely. Absolutely. He already, before his bar mitzvah, was wow. appearing in, in Sadegur. He was in Ukraine. He was, as a kid, he was a wunderkind. And then he started davening even before he got married. He had different positions in Europe, in Germany, in Poland, in Russia. He was, and people would flock from far and wide to come and hear him. He was so famous. Yeah, I can imagine. By the way, you're going to be in a neighborhood tomorrow night where people flocked from far and wide to come hear him, right? Weren't right. There, weren't, weren't there appearances he had on the Lower East Side of Manhattan at times? Yes, he did appear in Beis Medrash Hagado. Right. Um, and at least in one other show, I'm just trying to, uh, the, the name is, uh, maybe I'm blanking El on it. Maybe Eldridge Street, maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Not sure. Maybe, I don't know. Now, I don't want to misspeak, but, but yeah, the Lower East Side is where everything went on when it came to Chazan. So, 
And it's We're going back home. Yeah, it's happening again tomorrow night. Not that it hasn't before. I mean, uh, the, the the synagogue where it's tomorrow night has been the home of uh, great cantorial uh, evenings uh, many, many times, including Shabbatot. Now, talk about the, uh, I, I mean, there's got to be a list of stuff when it comes to Kiddush Hashem, because we know that he took representing the Jewish people very seriously, not just with the soul from the Bima, where he obviously was representing the Jewish people in front of the one above, but he took representing the Jewish people to the Hamon Am, and I'm talking about you know, to the general public very seriously. What can you tell us about that? Right. So in, in, in the later years of his life, and remembering that he died only at the age of 51, right. so in the later years, uh, nearing 51, he did appear more before secular audiences. But he did not ever agree to appear in a place where either there would be mixed, some sort of mixed singing, uh, or that he would compromise anything to do with Shabbos, even if that meant, by the way, that the performance would start Matzei Shabbos, let's say five minutes after Nach. Right. He wouldn't agree to that because he figured that that would mean a lot of people would come on Shabbos. And he gave up tremendous amounts of money um, out of his conviction and being a from Yid. And I think part of what makes him so famous is that people associate him not just with being a phenomenal chazan, but with being a true Eved Hashem, somebody who, when he davened, he lived the life of a, of a Eved Hashem, not just right. getting up there to perform. And he had that look, right? And the look was important because people, I, I, am I right or wrong? Is it a myth that he was offered to, that he was asked, or that he was offered a lot of money to shave his beard? Was that, was that a thing? Or, or I, I don't know if it was or not, but the, the, the reality is he, 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 uh, he had that persona and that look, not just the voice of a real Jew, so to speak. Yes. By the way, I don't know about whether he was offered a lot of money, though I have heard that before. Yeah. I just don't know where I would source it. But Chazanim, on the Chazanim of his time, used to make fun of him. Ooh. They actually used to call him in Yiddish, burden you, like you have, a, which is a, you have, you're, you're the bearded cantor. Because everybody else was clean-shaven. They were coming to America. It was a new beginning. And he looked straight out of Eastern Europe. Right. And he didn't change. But that was part of what made him so great. Pretty amazing. Uh, tomorrow night, Cantor's World presents Remembering the King of Cantors, Yesler Rosenbaum, on his 89th birthday. Uh, how did Cantor's World decide that these six chazanim that I mentioned would be the ones to commemorate Yesler? <laughs> anyway, I answer that question. <laughs> You're going to be in All trouble. <laughs> I think I have to go now. <laughs> Maybe you could just say you pulled it out of a hat, you know. <laughs> uh, right. So, so I'll tell you what, I, what we did was we posted in different groups of Chazanim, and, and this event is different than usually. And usually we sell tickets, sponsorships. This is open to all. There's no charge to come. Um, and basically what we post and we said to the Chazanim, whoever wishes to participate, you know, you're welcome to come and join. It's eight, there's 89th yard site. He doesn't have obviously any children living. Right. Um, and we want to at least that someone, some Chazanim should remember the man who, by the way, every Chaznu goes for a probe to a shul. He's going to be asked, sing a piece from Rosenblatt. Really? So, absolutely. <laughs> I remember when I tried out in Park East and before that at the Jewish Center, the first thing they say to you is, can you sing us? A selection from Rosenblatt. Oh it's the, it's like the national anthem of cantorial music. <laughs> um, so, so we chose, and what we look to do is we look to choose chazanim that are a little bit less known, so that part of the message is that, yes, while cantorial music is not what it was, but it continues to live on. And specifically, you have one chazan, it's Maronite, Mati Boyer, who when he sings, people actually compare his look and voice to Rosenblatt. Oh my gosh. It, that incredible. must that must be pressure. I know Health God always had that pressure. 
Right. Wow. Helfgott has that with Kosovitsky. Right, with Kosovitsky, right. right. With, uh, so, so, you know, we chose young Chazanim, and, and it's incredible, because some of the Chazanim that we'll sing tomorrow night have unbelievable voices. And this may be either the first or second time that they're actually performing in a formal setting. Um, so we're very excited about that. I mean, I have to assume it's going to be packed. You just said it's a free event, and, and Rosenblatt always attracts a crowd, so I, I guess it's going to be packed, no? Yes. Well, uh, again, based on the response that we've heard from people, I think there'll be a, a lot of people there. And you got to understand, even if we didn't have any Chazanim that people know, right. the name Rosenblatt, it, yeah. it just, people feel so strongly about him. They, there's such a warmth when it comes, he's such a legend, that I think people would come out no matter what, but added to these wonderful young Chazanim, I think hopefully we'll have a winning ticket tomorrow night. No, no question about that. And, and it's been a while since there's been a Cantor's World events. I'm sure there are a lot of people just anxious to get out and hear the Chazanim, you know? Yes. In, in, during COVID, we did everything online. And, right. you know, you could sing into a computer, yeah. but it's not the same as singing it to, to a live audience. Yeah, I bet. So people are excited to come out and see it. And also, by the way, let's not underestimate what the Lower East Side means to people. Right. Almost everyone I meet tells me, oh, you know what? My parents lived on the Lower East Side. My grandparents lived on the right. Lower East Side. So for many people, this is really going back home. No question about it. By the way, just back to the Cantus for a moment, I, I get that some of them are not as well-known as others, and, and that's one of the reasons you wanted to feature them, which is great. But you still probably, I assume, had to choose Cantus that you knew could do a Rosenblatt piece well, right? There, 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 have to be, there has to be, a, I would assume, some type of uh, evaluation system among Cantus. Oh, he does this one well, he does this one well. I, I would assume part of it was you had to gather some guys that – that really could present Rosenblatt well. Yes, yes, and and that's another. It's a, that's a very good point because there are many Chazanim that are great, but let's yeah. say they're greater at Kosovitsky. Right. Exactly. Even by the way, I think if you had my good friend Don Cantor Elfgott and you asked him, "What are you better at, Rosenblatt or Kosovitsky?" I'm ninety nine percent sure right. that he would say to you Kosovitsky because that's his kind of voice. Right. The Rosenblatt voice, you know this baritone slash tenor slash tremendous amount of emotion in the first note, it's a certain kind of personality and kind of voice. And I think the Chazanim that we're putting up tomorrow really have that. All right. Um, what selection do you think we should play from Rosenblatt? Uh, if, we don't, if we don't do one, Yoichi Herzog's going <laughs> to have a big tie on me. What, what do you think? I mean, I have some of them in front of me here. Anything come to mind that you would do? Uh... Um, you know, Rosenblatt did a lot of, uh, first of all, he himself, all his compositions were his own. So he wrote over 200 compositions. But some of the famous ones are Achenu, or I don't want to say Hinnini because it's not, we're not even in the summer. I don't want yeah. to think about Not the, even it's near Slichus yet, right. <laughs> right, but Achaz is always thinking about the high holidays. That's right. He, he's always living the high holidays, as I'm sure you but, are right but now. But the truth is, Nachum, anything you would pick from Rosenblatt, any piece, All right, so we'll has do... this flavor of, of Neshama and Soul. All right, I'm assuming you're referring to Achenu Kolbeis Yisrael, right? That's the one you're talking exactly. about. All right, so we'll do that one here to wrap it up. And um, I, I just, I, I can't, um, I, I can't, uh, uh, um, emphasize enough that that his his legacy is so much more than the music. You know, it's funny. I, I should have mentioned earlier. You know, so many compositions that we're familiar with, he actually wrote, as you just pointed out. But the legacy is so far beyond that because of the way he carried himself, the way he represented our people. I said, if you're into Kiddush Hashem, you're going to be into Rosenblatt, just the way he, uh, you know, he uh, uh, projected himself as a as a leader. That's how he was viewed, right? People looked at him like the rabbi, the leader. That's how he. That was how he was viewed. Um, and, cer right. and certainly the cantor uh, of the Jewish people. So uh, that, that ha cannot be minimized. Um, cantor Benny 
and I and everybody invite you to be part of Cantor's World tomorrow night because uh, they're going to be at the Congregation Hassam Sofer, uh, which means that um, Reb Eugene Weiser, I'm sure, is going to be there, right? I would guess. Of course. I would guess. And, and be thanks there. to Eugene and the Shul that we're able to do it. And uh, best regards to, uh, to Rabbi Sif, and I would assume Charlie's going to be there. Am I right about that? Or, or? If nothing happens in Cantor's World without Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie Birdhat, who you'll hear tonight on our network, everybody, during the Cantorial Hour. Uh, this evening, uh, he's going to be there as well, and they'll all be remembering the King of Cantors, Yassela Rosenblatt, on his 89th yard site. The lineup is as follows: Cantors, Mutti Boyer, Arye Horowitz, uh, Pinya uh, Steinwurzel, A.T. Friedman, Yechezkel Brecher, and Nisim Sal. Tomorrow night, 8 p.m., Congregation Hassam Sofer on 10 Clinton Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Cantor Benny, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Nachum, and look forward to seeing people there tomorrow. And here we go. Kenta Yassela Rosenblatt, JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. with Achenu done by Kantor Rosenblatt. The event tomorrow night, uh, and I want to thank our friends at Kedem, uh, the Herzog family, Yoichi Herzog in particular, uh, for always encouraging us to remember and to keep alive the incredible selections and the incredible life of the great Kantor Yesler Rosenblatt. 
That was my conversation with Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky. Dan Grunfeld has an amazing brand new book. His father, Ernie, the only uh, player in professional sports to be the son of a Holocaust survivor. And a very interesting book about uh, his father's life and his own life. Dan Grunfeld, a recent guest on JM and the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, as I was just telling uh, Dan Grunfeld off the air, I thoroughly enjoyed his book. It's entitled By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy and an Unprecedented American Dream. We'll talk about it in a moment uh, with the author. Um, uh, we actually, uh, Dan was scheduled to be with us on the air around the time the book came out, which was the week of uh, March 20th, and then as... Uh, Many of you remember March 27th. As many of you remember, uh, March 27th was the day of the fire in our studio, and it took us some time to uh, regroup. We weren't able to have uh, guests on the air with us that week. Um, anyway, so, uh, but th thank goodness uh, we followed up and um, were able to speak with Dan Grunfeld about the brand new book, which I, again, am highly highly recommending anybody out there who is uh, into modern jewish history especially if you have any affinity towards sports in this country you'll absolutely love it if the magnitude of an american dream is measured by the intensity of the nightmare that came before and the heights of the triumph achieved after then the grunfeld family has experienced an american dream of unprecedented scale a courageous struggle to avoid auschwitz and a harrowing escape to the U.S. somehow led to basketball, a vehicle that took Ernie Grunfeld and his family from the grips of the Nazis to the top of the Olympic podium, from the cheap seats to center stage at Madison Square Garden, from yellow stars to silver spoons. Ernie's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And by the grace of the game, Dan Grunfeld, a former basketball standout at Stanford, shares the incredible story of his family, a delicately interwoven narrative that doesn't lack in heartbreak. It remains as deeply nourishing as his grandmother's Hungarian cooking. Dan Grunfeld is a former professional basketball player, an accomplished writer, and a proud graduate of Stanford University, an academic All-American and All-Conference basketball selection at Stanford. Dan played professionally for eight seasons in top leagues around the world, including in Germany, Spain, and Israel. Dan Grunfeld, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Nothing. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, we should also mention that it's not just the NBA. Uh, your father was the only one in any of the four major sports in this country to play professionally and, in fact, have the distinction of being the uh, child of Holocaust survivors, correct? Yeah, that's right. You know, I did a year and a half of research for the book, and I kept digging deeper and deeper, and I call, you know, talked to the, the historians from all the major leagues, and no one, there wasn't another player whose parents, both parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, the story is unbelievable. I mean, the fact that your family survived the Holocaust is incredible uh, to begin with. And then the the achievements that the, the family, obviously through your father and others, um, uh, came to in this country is simply remarkable. Uh, it, very often, very often, both the generation of the Holocaust and even to an extent the next generation that you're a part of uh, like to avoid the topic. And and often it is a it, it's a difficult and painful one to number one experience as a family and number two to bring to the public it seems that you had the exact opposite approach you went ahead and uh, and authored a book uh, that details everything that your family went through why do you think you had a completely different type of attitude than others when approaching this work 
you know, so I'm third generation, right? So my grandparents are survivors. And, you know, I talk a lot in the book about privilege and I'm privileged in a lot of ways. But one of them is that I have a generation of separation from all this tragedy and trauma. And I can kind of look at it, you know, and get inspiration from it. You know, my dad never had that luxury. You know, my dad was born in the ashes of the Holocaust. And so he doesn't really talk about it. You find with survivors, it's often a binary. Either they never talk about it or it's their obligation. And my grandmother was in the latter group. She, I always grew up hearing her speak of her loved ones who were lost and telling stories. And, you know, my grandma turned 97 a few weeks ago. Wow. You know, we talk every single day. And as you know from the book, she's the star of our, forget, you know, my dad's <laughs> basketball accomplishments or my own. My grandmother is the star of our family. She's the star of the story. And she's just always been very open with me. So, you know, as I got older, as I learned more about the story, it really became my dream to tell it. Yeah, Anya uh, seems to run away from the glory, and yet it chases her, right? <laughs> she can't avoid it. You know, I always <laughs> I always thought, Anya, someone called, they loved the book. You know, you inspired them. And she said, no, you did it. You did it. I said, no, Anya, it's you. It's always you. Yeah, she's, she's one of a kind. And, you know, just by reading the book, you get to know her. And she's really a remarkable woman. Yeah, and and the reason, by the way, that I you know I, I sort of put you in the second generation status is because of of the years after the war that your father spent in Europe, and then of course uh, you know coming to this country, not maybe officially as refugee status, but sort of in a refugee status. And I think that there are so many personalities, including yourself, who are so inspiring uh, in this book, uh, and, and that people will gain inspiration from. We'll start with your with your grandmother for a moment. I mean, it, it must baffle you, especially as you did all the research, that one. Can go ahead in the shadow of all these of all these tragedies, all the people in her family being lost and murdered, and all the circumstances that she was put in. It must baffle you that she was able to survive the entire ordeal. Yeah, it, it's extraordinary. You know, she lost five siblings and both parents in the Holocaust. She survived in Budapest, and you know, my grandmother. She is a symbol of you know survival, perseverance, will to live. She also has incredible humility. So she'll be the first one to say, I had all the things you needed to survive, but during the Holocaust, it didn't matter. You needed luck and you needed help. And you know, through the book, you know, she had, someone gave her a piece of bread. Someone yep. gave her an extra pair of pants. Someone gave her a kiss on the cheek that gave her hope. You know, all these acts of kindness helped her get through, but it was really Raul Wallenberg, you know, the legendary Swedish diplomat who yep. saved her life twice in Budapest, right? So my grandmother had everything you needed to survive, but most times it wasn't enough in those days. And, you know, she also had health and she had luck and yeah, she, her story, you know, how she made it through. It's just, it's incredible. And by the way, we should point out, uh, not to give everything away here, because I want people to buy the book and enjoy it like I did, but, but the, the, the Wallenberg, she was saved twice by Wallenberg, but, but neither time in the traditional sense that Wallenberg saved people, which, which leads me to say and observe that, that Wallenberg may have saved a certain number of people. We know about that, obviously, through all the stories and the history. But we don't realize how many other people, what type of ripple effect the fact that he was out there trying to save Jews had on so many others. And I think it's an important point to make. Absolutely. I'm glad you did. I always, you know, I talk to a lot of young groups and students about the book, the story. And I tell them, if you want, you know, heroes can look different. But if you want to really know what a hero looks like, just Google Raul Wallenberg. Yeah. You know, not Jewish, Gentile, went to, went to Budapest to, to help the Jews. And, you know, he was never seen again. He was apprehended by the Russians after the war. So he risked his life and lost his life to help others. So he, I mean, he's a true hero. And your point is a great one. Who knows how many he really, really helped because 
again twice for my grandmother in different ways right and you, you have, you, folks it's worth it it's worth it to read it just for that dan grunfeld's with us the forward of the book by the way by ray allen we'll talk about that in a moment the book is entitled by the grace of the game the holocaust a basketball legacy and unprecedented american dream so um we talk about uh, you know all these personalities in the book being inspiring um so your your grandparents um your your father's parents you know they come to this country and and i i know for many it would be a uh you know a a a traditional story of immigrants coming here and starting from scratch but that also must be very inspiring to you and obviously it was uh to me and i'm sure to many who are reading about it that the um the the you know you got to start from almost nothing they were lucky they had a little bit of something and they had some relatives here but you have to start from almost nothing and start building up uh what were your thoughts as you were researching what it was like for them uh to work in a store all those days and to you know try to build the american dream from scratch Right. Just a, a hard, hard background, but it was so inspiring to do the research, to interview people, not only in my family, but externally, just to learn about that time. And it gives everyone hope. You know, if you can come to America after losing your whole family, not speaking the language, having no formal education, you know, because my grandparents weren't able to be formally educated because of the Holocaust. And they opened up a fabric store in the Bronx. You know, they work seven, six days a week and they built a nice life here. And in the meantime, my dad, you know, looking for connection after losing his older brother, looking, you know, for a sense of belonging. He started playing basketball on the playgrounds of Queens. Unbelievable. The whole thing is unbelievable. And and, and what you just the, the the fact that they went through, meaning your grandparents went through all this tragedy and then then thank God had the muzzle to get to the United States and to start from scratch and, you know, and and start to build and then lose a son, your father's brother, your uncle. Uh, I, I, it, it, it was heartbreaking to read how you described it because, again, they came from all that tragedy and all that background, but to, to, you know, to, to feel like, okay, now I'm here and there's plenty of hope and there's plenty of life and there's plenty to progress with, etc., and then to suffer through that must have been just uh, – and, and you point out, by the way, that I mean, for, for your grandparents it was a very difficult topic to ever, to ever bring up, right? Absolutely. And for my dad in particular, you know, my dad was nine years old when his brother passed and his brother's eight years older than him. And, you know, I write in the book what my dad called his brother in Hungarian, their native language translates in English to my king. Right. Right. And, you know, I have two boys, you know, imagine your youngest calling your oldest my king. And, you know, my uncle, you know, passed away at 17 years old from leukemia. And so, yeah, it's heartbreaking even today. And I'm named after my uncle. As you know, from the book, right? I read about it very honestly, that the obligation I feel from that, but that's a hole that can't be filled. And my book is called by the grace of the game intentionally, right? Because it was basketball that shined its light on my family when we really needed it because of the Holocaust, but also because my uncle's passing. I don't think my dad would have flown so far so fast had he not been moving away from so much tragedy. 
Now let's talk about your dad for a moment. We'll get to you because you're also an inspiring figure. Don't worry. But uh, your father's <laughs> your father's basketball uh, career. I mean, I I guess it sort of starts off as a combination of understanding and realizing he has some athletic ability, and he's trying to fit in, and he's trying to be one of the you know one of the kids on the playground, and also as an escape from from all the different things that um, are going around uh, are going on around him. I mean, it, it looks like for multiple reasons. Basketball was important to him as a youngster. Hundred percent for, for the reasons you mentioned. You know, being coming to America, not speaking the language, and as you know from the book, he was made fun of by kids. Right? right. I mean, he came to America speaking fluent Hungarian, Romanian, and Italian. Didn't speak a word of English. Had never touched a basketball. You know, my grandfather was a world-ranked ping pong player and kind of a semi-professional soccer player. You know, big six foot three, burly guy. A great athlete, but basketball wasn't, you know, wasn't a sport they played in Romania. So, yeah, he was a fish out of water in New York City. And then his brother passes, right? And so when, you know, it, it was so interesting hearing my dad, because I, I interviewed him so much for the book, and just hearing him describe his upbringing in Queens, you know, he said, that's what, that's what kids did. You know, you went to the playground and you played hoops, right? Particularly in the 70s, right? Like basketball, the city game, New York City. Uh, so said, I just wanted to make friends. I wanted to learn English and I just wanted to belong. And so, yeah, he was a good athlete and he's a, you know, a big guy. And so it just, it all clicked, but it clicked in a way that was larger than life. Yeah. And for my friends at the Young Israel of Forest Hills, we're talking about the Austin playground, everybody. That's literally where Dan Grunfeld's father, Ernie, uh, uh, learned the uh, the tools of the trade. And he goes ahead and he joins some leagues and uh, some local leagues and then uh, ends up playing for Forest Hills High School and then goes to Tennessee, which is also a cool story, by the way, about the recruiting process back in, the, uh, back in that era. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he becomes a, a great friend of Bernard King as their teammates and the, and the entire country knows about them. I mean, for those who are, are too young uh, to, to remember, you know, read up on it. Uh, make sure your children and grandchildren read up on this, folks, because it's an amazing relationship. You 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 actually call him Uncle Bernard, right, or Uncle Bernie, and uh, and, and your uh, Uncle B, Uncle B, <laughs> and your and your father uh, b- both treated him, and he treated him like brothers. The way they uh, they um, uh, were together at Tennessee, from very diverse, different back, both from challenging backgrounds, to say the least. Uh, and then, of course, right. and then, of course, eventually both of them are drafted into the NBA and they remain friends until today, which is really cool. I know that's really meaningful to this audience because both your father and Bernard King were were uh, major figures uh, for a lot of people listening right now when it came to basketball in that era. So that that in and of itself is a great that could be a book just about that relationship. And I think you pointed out in the book that, there, that ESPN actually did a documentary about the relationship between Bernie and Ernie, right? That's true. Yeah, and it's called Bernie and Ernie. I always tell people read the book first, but then you know watch the documentary. Yeah. But it is—it's it's an incredible relationship. And yeah, Bernard and my dad are still dear friends to this day. They talk every month, and you know they're from the same city, right? They're from New York City, but they're from very different places. You know, Bernard from Brooklyn, my dad from Queens, and they went to Tennessee, and they became legends there separately and together. You know, they're one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. They also played together for the Knicks. Now, Bernard remained a star in the NBA, right? He led the league in scoring. Right. My dad was a role player in the NBA. But, you know, in college, they both averaged more than 25 points per game. I mean, they were two of the greatest college basketball players of the era, and they played together. You know, it's, 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 an, it's an incredible, incredible story. And it's, kind of, it's very reflective of the whole family story, right? Basketball being a vehicle to bring people together. So it, it's very cool. Yeah, the whole thing is amazing. By the way, did you, just as an aside, because your father, many people know, in addition to being a player,
player, became a very important executive, a very prominent executive in the NBA and certainly helped build uh, a lot of teams after his playing career. Can I assume that the fact that he spoke multiple languages helped or is that only today where there are so many foreign players that the uh, uh, the knowledge of multiple language would really make a difference as an executive in the league? So it didn't because he speaks Hungarian, you know, which isn't exactly the most <laughs> common language spoken. So, so, but I'll tell you this, it helped him understand people and have emotional intelligence because, you know, in basketball, it's, it's an amalgamation of different people, different backgrounds. And because he came to this country, not speaking the language, he, he has a very sophisticated sense of people and how people fit in and making people feel included, you know? So it didn't help him to speak to people in Hungarian really, because not that many people were speaking it, but his experience really, really kind of informed how he approached his job and, and bringing people together and having empathy and an understanding for what people are going through. Boy, is he still in the league right now? We're working it all with basketball. So my dad spent 42 straight years with an NBA team. Uh, he left the Washington Wizards in 2019, and he's been taking some time. You know, he's a grandfather, and he's enjoying that right now. He still helps people from time to time, and people call him, but he's not officially with any team. And uh, yeah, but 42 straight years after you know being born under communism in Romania, the son of Holocaust survivors, coming to you know New York City at nine, not speaking English and not touching a basketball. So. Again, that's why I wrote the book. You know, it's really an incredible journey. And your late uncle, for whom you are named, actually had a a wish, maybe we can call it a dying wish, that his brother would become famous in New York. And boy, he became famous in New York, all right? And it's, isn't that spooky? Isn't that eerie that your uncle had that type of premonition? Yeah, it, it's a prophecy. You know, and, and, you know, I've heard that, but, you know, when I was reaching for the book, you know, my grandmother repeated it and we both cried, right? I mean, to hear my uncle as a dying young man and my dad was not even 10 years old didn't even speak english and he said there's nothing i'd want more than for my little brother to become famous and well known in america you know mm. and he passed away weeks later and and here's my dad you know just stumbled upon basketball and he became famous and well known in america you know so yeah it's I, and i and i asked my grandmother you know do, do you have any idea why my uncle said that and she said i don't know you know he, maybe he felt something who knows but he said it you know it, it's incredible when your father was playing for the Knicks, did he get a bunch of uh, bar mitzvah invitations from boys in the local area? Oh, <laughs> uh, forget it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, listen, he, my dad wore number 18. Right. Knicks, right. Know? And he was, and, and he played, he played with heart and, and passion and hustle, you know? And it's funny because my dad was such an incredible scorer in high school and in college. And again, an NBA, he was a role player, but I've had so many people reach out to me after the book came out about my dad as a player, but they don't talk about his scoring. They say, you know, there wasn't a ball that he didn't dive on. Right. And it wasn't a play that he didn't give his heart. I say, you know, read the book and understand what his parents went through, what he went through, what he learned growing up as an immigrant. And you'll understand why he played that way. So, yeah, for all those reasons, the Jewish community in New York City in the 80s and beyond, they were always Team Ernie, no doubt yeah. about it. And he was a New Yorker, which, you know, only added to the whole thing. It's not like he was coming from a different city or a different state. Dan Grunfeld's with us. The book is called By the Grace of the Game. We are highly recommending it. And now we get to Dan Grunfeld. Um, you weren't satisfied with your level of uh, of um, of a basketball play. You weren't satisfied with the way things were going so you made a commitment and uh, and showed the world that you in fact could become a superstar which you were at Stanford uh that was one 
uh, transition, if you will, or one uh, uh, a journey that you were on basketball wise. And then the other one is just remarkable. And I, and I would love you to detail it for us if you can. And that is that you suffer a massive injury. You have a torn ACL, and anybody listening these days knows exactly what that is, or certainly has heard of it. You have a torn ACL, and we know that that you know can be can keep someone out for months or years. And you were determined on a daily basis to do anything necessary to get back on that court uh, to to at least the level that you were at. Could you describe what that is like? Waking up in the morning and knowing that uh, the 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 labor that you're putting in. In order to try to recover from that injury, the fruits of that labor will not be seen or felt for months later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it all relates to the story we've been talking about, what drove me, right? Knowing my grandparents survived the Holocaust, came to America, my dad lost his brother, all the things that, that our family had went through and what basketball did for us, that all drove me. You know, so that, that was kind of the, the engine that was driving my basketball career. I played at Stanford, which is where I wanted to play from the time I was in seventh grade because my grandmother lives there. You know, she lives 25 minutes away from Stanford's campus. So I got to Stanford. She came to every single home game I played. And my sophomore year in school, my team was the number one team in the country, but I had a very, very poor year, as you know, right? And so I, I was really determined. And then the following year, I turned it around. I was one of the best players in the country at my position. And my dreams were coming true. This whole history, I was, you know, making good on it. And I tore my ACL on national TV at the end of the year, you know, with Tiger Woods sitting courtside. It was very, very dramatic. And so here I was back to zero. And as you know, I write in the book, I got hurt 20 feet away from where my grandmother sat for my game. I was in shock at first, but I was rolling around the floor. And when I finally came to, my grandmother was on the floor next to me rubbing my head, you know, and so that's, that shows you, you know, like she's always been there for me and I know what she went through. And so, for me, it was about picking up the pieces, just like she'd always done in her life, just like my dad did in his life. So like, to your point, every day I, you know, I mourned the injury for a short time, but I said, Hey, it's time to get to work. Woke up every day, did, you know, methodically, maniacally, you could say, did my rehab, you know, focused on it. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what sports is. You know, you invest in yourself for the future. So I was you know, living with my grandmother, spending 10 hours a day with my knee in a range of motion machine. No one knew what I was going through, you know, but you invest for the future. And so I just, you know, methodically tried to rebuild and I had the inspiration of my grandma and my dad. And so, you know, I just put my head down and got to work just like they'd always done. Unbelievable. And we should mention a couple of people that are, uh, again, I believe, inspiring figures in the book. One is the trainer. That, that helped you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, help is not, I don't even know if help's the right word because he may have been trying to hurt you more than help you with, with the, uh, with, well, the yeah. with, with the, with the course of, uh, of exercise that he, that he laid out. But I mean, you had somebody who was working you really tough, really rough. And, um, I don't know, you, you accepted it and you, you felt that, you know, it was worth a long-term goal, uh, but you were doing things physically that, you know, most of us would consider to be impossible. Uh, but I, I guess you felt that was the only way to improve, right? The only way to get better. Yeah, I thrived on it at the time because I wanted it so bad because of this history. You know, the, the game meant so it meant the world to me. And succeeding in basketball it wasn't just you know my ego or anything like that. Although those things, of course, exist, right? But it was my family, right? My grandparents survived the Holocaust, risked their lives, came to America so we could have it better, and I do have it better. And I wanted to always make something of myself because of that, you know, and so. I wanted it so bad. And after I hurt my knee, uh, you know, it, that, that just kind of escalated, but I had this trainer who was very extreme, 
and you know it was it was very hard work what we did but if you wanted it bad enough you endured that and, and in fact I, I cherish it right just because i knew i was doing things more extreme and harder than my competition and it showed you know i i was after i started working out with him you know, i became this top player and so it, it's it's fun to read about it's funny but i'll say he helped me a lot you know and you know his name is frank there's a method to his madness and it just shows we all need people in our lives, right? My grandmother had Wallenberg who saved her. We all need support yeah. and people who stand by us and are with us. And Frank was that type of person for me. He was with me when I needed him, and he, and he really helped me get better. And you have an amazing family support system, but without Frank, who knows if he could have done it, you know? I mean, even even when you have great support around you, you still need that person who's going to push you regularly and, and, and just make you make you improve. And you know enough, I'll tell you something. I didn't write this in the book. But so Frank worked me out. He, he pushed me so hard. And, you know, I tell funny stories about the extreme lengths yep. he would go to, to, to test me, yep. you know, will I break? And, and I didn't, but you know, I got hurt and, you know, Frank lives in San Francisco about 45, 50 minutes from Stanford's campus. And when I hurt my knee, I had to, you know, schlep around campus on crutches and I would call Frank and tell him, Hey man, I need a ride back to my dorm. And he would drive from San Francisco 50 minutes just to drive me two minutes back to my dorm so I didn't have to be on my crutches, right? So there's the heart behind it and the friendship and the trust, you know? And so it's, it's deeper than just exercise, right? It's really it's wow. commitment. And, you know, you become, you become family when you're that close and you go through things like that together. Wow. Sort of, if you're that committed, I'm going to do anything I can for you. Wow. Well, that's right. That's what, exactly right. What a lesson in life that is. Uh, we got. I, I don't know if you want to reveal the name because, frankly, you know, I want people to buy the book. But we should mention that um, uh, one of the key people in this entire story and your uh, and your um, uh, family's survival is a very well-known Jewish comedian. In fact, anybody and I have a friend who's very into the Jewish Catskills and its history. Uh, I'm going to share the story with them I, again. I don't know if you want to say the name, but let's just say that somebody who you wouldn't who you wouldn't expect was an extremely important uh, figure in your family's history in getting to the United States. I tell you, that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. I'll say the name because folks will get the book. You just won't believe how it all came together. <laughs> That's but, true, uh, and I and you won't believe it because I you know I grew up hearing the story, but that it just. So, you know, my family was able to to get illegal money out of Romania, out of communism in a very improbable way. And it was Buddy Hackett, a Jew from Brooklyn, who was able to help my family smuggle their money out of communism uh, in just the most extraordinary way. <laughs> so uh, I know there are so many Buddy Hackett fans in New York City. Yep. I'm one of the biggest, you know, and I, he, I was a, he was a little bit before my time, but what he did for my family, you know, it resonates it reverberates through generations, right? That the kindness that he showed. And so he'll, he'll always be one of my favorite comedians. And frankly, knowing his public persona, one may not suspect that he would be there to help refugees. And sure enough, he came through like crazy. So he's got to be acknowledged. And also uh, you have to explain to the audience, but I get it because I, I know somewhat about his, um, about his background. Uh, you got to explain to the audience why the forward was written by Ray Allen and uh, how you discovered that he's such a mensch. So Ray Allen was recently named one of the top 75 players in NBA history, right? So he's literally one of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. I'm lucky to know Ray because my dad was a general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks when Ray was a young player. They spent so much time together. Ray knew our family. Ray had no idea that my dad's parents were Holocaust survivors. And similarly, my dad had no idea that Ray's mission and passion was to educate people on the Holocaust. He saw Schindler's List in college when he was a star at UConn. And he was just moved. He said, this isn't just a Jewish tragedy. This is a human tragedy. 
And so every time his teams played in Washington, D.C., he took teammates to the Holocaust Museum. He's visited Auschwitz and taken groups to Auschwitz. You know, he doesn't just talk to talk. He walks the walk. Yeah. And so uh, President Obama appointed him to the board of the Holocaust Museum in 2016. And so, you know, w- once I wrote the book and the story was out there, we connected. And I told him, I said, Ray, like, here's my dad's background. You probably don't know. And he had no idea. And I just asked him, you know, would you stand by the story and commit? And he didn't hesitate. He said, Dan, I'm with you, you know? And so, and just so you know, I had Ray's jersey hanging on the wall of my bedroom in high school. I was an up and coming shooting guard. He was a shooting guard. That's how much I looked up to him. But I tell people, and it's the truth, I look up to him more now as an adult because what he, in talk about the word mensch is the right word. Ray is a mensch. You know, he, he's a global icon, but he uses his platform to make the world a better place. And, you know, he, he educates, he talks about the Holocaust. And for, for me, who, you know, my grandparents survived, but they lost their loved ones. It just means the world. So he wrote it incredibly moving forward. Yep. And he, he's, he's one of a kind. He's an amazing person. We're talking about the world champion Ray Allen, folks. And yeah, the forward is really heartwarming. It's beautiful and uh, adds so much to this uh, great presentation by uh, Dan Grunfeld. Uh, the book is called By the Grace of the Game, everybody. It's a Triumph publishing release, triumphbooks.com. I'm sure it's available everywhere. I would assume Amazon, etc. Dan Grunfeld is the yep. is the author By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy and an Unprecedented American Dream. If you are at all into Holocaust history, modern Jewish history, certainly if you have any affinity toward American sports or if you know kids out there for whom sports will be a great entree into this entire topic of what families went through the Holocaust, uh, then check out this book. I'm highly recommending it. Uh, Dan, where are you hanging out these days? You're on the East Coast, West Coast. Where are you based? I'm based on the West Coast, but my wife and I welcomed a baby boy 11 weeks ago. Wow. uh, And we have, yeah. So if I sound rested, I'm not. <laughs> but, what date? Uh, what date was the? It. What date was the baby born? Uh, April first. Wow, that's literally like a day or two after we were supposed to speak. That's funny. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. Because he came a little early, and we were supposed to speak. Uh, yeah, and then he, yeah, he came. I was actually just mentioning that to my wife. But so we're based in the Bay Area, but we had the baby in Washington D.C. to be around family, and wow. so we're here now in the D.C. area. And uh, yeah, that's where you find me today. I look forward to uh, meeting you one day. I hope we get the opportunity. Likewise, Malcolm. This has been really, really great. Thank you so much. Dan, congratulations. Best to your father and the entire, and to Anya, of course, and the entire family. <laughs> and thanks for joining yeah. us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Grunfeld, by the grace of the game, check it out. You'll be glad you did. That I could tell you. More coming up. It's a Monday. It's JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dan Grunfeld. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up on the Nahum Siegel Network.